0: Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. Can human genes be patented? That's the question behind George Contreras' book, The Genome Defense. In this episode, you'll hear from the author, a professor of law at the University of Utah, who tells the story of the landmark 2013 Supreme Court case, Association for Molecular Pathology versus Myriad Genetics. The longshot case brought by the ACLU challenged the right to patent human genes, a practice that had been granted by the U.S. Patent Office to research universities and biotech companies for decades.
1: The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window.
0: George Contreras, your new book, The Genome Defense, is the backstory of the landmark 2013 Supreme Court decision in AMP versus Myriad Genetics. Tell me what was at stake in this case.
1: So this case was about a lot of different things, uh, but most importantly, it was about whether companies and universities could patent human genes.
0: And what made it landmark?
1: The case was really revolutionary in that the U.S. Patent Office had been issuing patents on genes for about 25 years already. It was considered well-established practice and uh, recognized law that this could be done. So the case overturned some pretty strongly held expectations in the industry.
0: You write in the introduction that you also see this as a story about how the law struggles to keep pace with scientific advances and also it's a story about how Washington works, and specifically, quote, people who seize the opportunity can impact outcome. Would you explain those concepts?
1: <laughs> sure, sure. There was a lot going on in this case. Um, there was a very strong Washington, D.C. connection, and uh, we can get into that in more detail later if you want. But the, uh, the administration uh, was strongly involved in the case because of some of the issues that it raised around public health and uh, women's health. Um, but in the face of a very longstanding government policy to issue patents on these uh, on genes, um, it took a group of outsiders from the American Civil Liberties Union, primarily, to look at this practice and decide they wanted to challenge it. And in the United States, our legal system allows it, type of challenge.
0: Your own story behind the story is a pretty interesting one, too. Would you tell me it?
1: Sure, sure. So I, uh, I'm i a law professor right now, but I spent most of my career in legal practice, and I was an electrical engineer by training, uh, but got into the world of genomics and genetics through representing a consortium of pharmaceutical companies called the SNP consortium back in the late 90s, uh, which was involved in funding a project to create a map of markers along the human genome while the public... Human Genome Project was moving along, and this project, uh, its its goal was to release all of their information to the public free of charge so that it could be used as a resource for everyone, for all researchers, and, and that got me interested in genomics and the idea that this basic science and scientific discoveries could be made available for everyone, which does run counter to the idea of Patenting uh, the human genes.
0: And how did you get from that experience as a lawyer interested in genomic patents to writing this book?
1: It was a fairly circuitous path, I have to admit. Um, but, you know, the, the genes at issue in this book, which are two genes called BRCA1 and 2, which relate strongly to human breast and ovarian cancer, those genes were discovered in 1994 and patents issued on them in 1997 and uh, subsequent years. And they were well known in the industry. People who knew about genetics and patents knew about these genes and knew about the company Myriad Genetics that was offering diagnostic testing uh, relating to the genes. So for a number of years, uh, there was criticism in academic circles and genetic circles of some of the companies. Practices. Um, it was a surprise to most people in the industry, including me, when the ACLU and the Public Patent Foundation brought a lawsuit challenging those patents in 2009. And um, I, I was fascinated as soon as that happened. I knew uh, that it was important. I, I didn't think the case had a huge chance of success uh, when it was first brought, but as It rolled on year after year through different appeals and uh, machinations. Um, It became increasingly clear that there was really something important going on here. And uh, by the time it got to the Supreme Court, I I knew that this was uh, gonna be a very important landmark case and one that I definitely wanted to tell the story of.
0: You teach law at the University of Utah. Myriad Genetics is a Utah-based company and its research came out of the University of Utah. Is that a coincidence?
1: As a matter of fact, it it is a coincidence. When I began this project um, in 2013, which is around when the Supreme Court case was uh, being heard, I was in uh, I was at American University in Washington, D.C. and and, and moved to the University of Utah um, uh, with my family. Uh, subsequently, um, I'm very happy here, and actually, I think that being here in Utah did help me. Um, get access to documents and people that I might not have been able to access um, had I not been here locally.
0: How many years did you work on the book altogether?
1: Well, I started in 2013, so it's about eight years. So, of, of course, with some gaps in between.
0: And and you write that you interviewed 100 people for this. At, at what point did you, as a, as a writer, put in your mind that this really is a people story as well as a patent story. And uh, in the end, develop a a book about patent law that's a bit of a page turner. Oh,
1: well, thank you for that. (laughs) That that was definitely the goal. You know, I knew from the beginning that this was a story about People, the, the story about patents has been written already, and I've written, and many of my colleagues in the academy have written articles analyzing the case and analyzing the issues and and the patents. And there are books that that already deal with the technical uh, legal issues. I, I thought, though, that you know this was an important enough story and an important enough development in the evolution of the law that regular people, general readers, should hear about it and get some understanding of what was going on and so to me the the individuals who were behind this case were really fascinating admirable both both at the aclu and the public patent foundation but also at, at the company i i thought that a lot of the press coverage um you know at at the time of the case was relatively one-sided um, and I wanted to present uh, the views of everybody who was involved.
0: Well, we have an hour together, and along the way, we'll try to get in the important characters as well as some of the, the significant legal steps in our time together. Before we get there, I wanted to ask about uh, really uh, the public interest in a larger sense. So the... Uh, the- Research into the gene uh, was done, as I understand it, by scientists, researchers at the University of Utah with NIH grants. And then ultimately this spun off into an enormously successful company. Um, I'm imagining that this happens a lot at big research universities around the country, federal grants plus uh, their own work, uh, and then the successful ones become for-profit companies. When they do that, how is the public interest served?
1: Yeah, so this is a really interesting and important question because you're absolutely right. Certainly in the area of genetics, much of the basic research that's done is done at research institutions, universities, and other uh, institutions, and a lot of it is funded by the federal government. NIH funds something like $40 billion of uh, basic research and applied research every year, Um, and so a lot of this does come out of public research institutions. It Uh, Universities, though, uh, don't make drugs. They don't uh, run commercial diagnostic services and so forth. So in order for this university and government-developed technology to get into the marketplace, there are mechanisms to do that, um, and usually it's through private companies. Um, and, And in many cases, those companies don't just wait until the discoveries are made. In the case of Myriad and and many uh, spin-outs from universities. The companies are created as soon as there's a research idea. um, And the company sort of locks up rights to any discoveries that come out of the university lab in advance. Um, So with Myriad Genetics, which came out of the University of Utah, um, the exclusive licensing agreement to all of the breast cancer uh, genetic discoveries coming out of the Skolnick lab, that was signed years before the gene was actually discovered. Um, And this does uh, get money into the R&D cycle. It does, to some degree, advance discovery. But on the other hand, it puts these valuable resources into the hands of for-profit companies, as opposed to universities that presumably have a public mission. Um, that they're supposed to be fulfilling, and I and uh, my colleague Jake Sherko have written about this in the context of the CRISPR gene editing technology. Uh, we we feel that this is to some degree an abdication of the university's uh, public missions when they transfer all of these rights out to a public uh, or private entity that doesn't have the same public missions. They are forfeiting uh, the control and the public. Uh, stewardship that they otherwise might have over this technology.
0: Well, let's get into the story of the case. Uh, The ACLU was led by Anthony Romero, who still is the executive director of the organization today. Uh, How did he get interested in patent challenges, gene patent challenges?
1: Uh, He did indirectly. Um, I really had the privilege of uh, interviewing him for this book, and he's a very impressive guy. Took over the reins of the ACLU. I mean, like you know, two weeks before the uh, the 9/11 terrorist attacks, and uh, had his hands full ever since. Um, one of the outcomes of that really tragic period in American history is that there was a strong focus on civil liberties and civil rights that came out of it, um, given concerns about the USA Patriot Act and uh, uh, surveillance of U.S. citizens and so forth. So the ACLU. Uh, received a lot of funding and donations during that period, Um, so much so that they were able to double the size of their staff. And one thing that uh, Romero thought would be beneficial is more expertise on staff relating to scientific issues. Uh, There were a lot of questions around DNA fingerprinting and the FBI's uh, CODIS database of DNA and other biomedical technologies that were being used by law enforcement um, that the ACLU felt were relevant to a lot of their civil liberties and civil rights work, but they didn't have someone on staff uh, who was a scientist. So they hired for the first time in 2003 a scientist to advise them and become their scientific advisor. And this was uh, a woman named Tanya Simoncelli, uh, who had completed a graduate degree at Berkeley, was working at a nonprofit relating to uh, genetic issues um, out there, and uh, was was recruited by the ACLU to become their first science director, and she's the one who brought their attention to these issues.
0: We found a clip of her in the C-SPAN archives from 2007. And while it's not directly, of course, related to this case, it is about DNA. And I, I just wanted to show it to our audience so they could get a sense of who she is. Let's watch.
1: When someone is on the database, their biological sample that's in the form of their saliva sample or their blood sample is also being permanently retained by the government. And there's a lot of information in that biological sample. Unlike a fingerprint, DNA can reveal all sorts of information. So long as the biological samples are retained, there is no guarantee that these samples will not be accessed for other purposes.
0: So as you tell the story, she seems as though she's really in some ways the godmother of this whole case. I'm wondering how she convinced uh, Anthony Romero and the ACLU to pursue gene patent strategy? So,
1: you know, as as the clip shows, um, one of her primary interests was DNA fingerprinting and the use of DNA in law enforcement. And she and a colleague actually wrote an entire book about that topic um, while she was at the ACLU. But there were other issues floating around. As I said, you know, this issue of gene patenting was floating around um, as and viewed as problematic in uh, academic and policy circles since the late 90s. And she was well aware of it. She uh, had a science policy background, uh, got a degree in science policy from Cornell, which is one of the leading uh, institutions um, in that area, and knew about gene patenting issues. And and one day, uh, as she was discussing potential litigation avenues – that the aclu might take to address different issues including the dna fingerprinting issue that uh, the clip was about she mentioned gene patenting to a senior aclu lawyer named chris hansen um, and hansen is a very prominent lawyer in the aclu had uh litigated cases ranging from school desegregation to mental health care facilities to online porn um and had a very broad remit. He was a national legal counsel, could basically address any legal issues that he thought were relevant to the ACLU. And and he was kind of a sounding board for these scientific issues for Tanya Simoncelli, And in a conversation where she was discussing a bunch of different issues, she mentioned, and there's always gene patenting, um, and he actually was a little incredulous when she mentioned this and didn't believe that she actually had correctly identified an issue. He, he thought it was impossible, you couldn't patent a human gene. Um, but obviously she was right and she convinced him eventually <laughs> of that. And um, that, that led to his uh, uh, increasing interest in the issue and it was really, Uh, He, who was able to uh, work with her to convince upper uh, management at the ACLU, including uh, Steve Shapiro, who was the litigation director, and uh, Anthony Romero, the executive director, that that this was a cause worth fighting for.
0: At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the We just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. How difficult was it to convince the ACLU board that this was the direction they should go? It
1: it wasn't easy, uh, and it took about four years to do it, so this conversation that they had uh, about gene patenting, the first one occurred in late 2004, and the lawsuit wasn't brought until uh, March of 2009. So there was really a long period there when much of what they had to do was convince the ACLU and its national board that this was not only a good thing to do, but that it was within ACLU's established policies because an organization like the ACLU doesn't litigate any old case that comes along. It, it has to observe its own internal policy. And in its hundred years of existence, the ACLU had never brought a patent case. There was never uh, an issue relating to patents that attracted their attention. They have brought a lot of copyright cases, um, which relate to free speech and freedom of the press. Um, and patents are sort of related to copyright, but not really Um, And they had brought online pornography and uh, communications cases. Chris Hansen litigated one of those to the Supreme Court, but again, not quite there. So they had to form a a patent committee uh, of the board, uh, which included a bunch of people who were very interested, but again, didn't have a huge amount of expertise in this area. And they gradually felt their way with some outside experts and eventually, uh came around to view this as a suitable subject for the ACLU to pursue
0: one of the outside experts they brought to the question was someone uh, that you said earned the title the gene queen <laughs> who is she
1: so, the Gene Queen, this is a, a title bestowed on her by a magazine that ran a feature story on her uh, a number of years ago. And her name is uh, Lori Andrews. And she's a law professor at uh, the Illinois Institute of Technology and one of the really early thinkers um, in the area of genetics and law, and particularly uh, genetics and patents. And in um, uh, a number of years before this, she had brought a case challenging uh, patents held by Miami Children's Hospital on a gene relating to Canavan's disease, another uh, hereditary uh, pediatric disease, um, and was unsuccessful in that effort uh, because she was effectively outgunned by a large healthcare system with lots of legal resources. Uh, and she was acting as a law professor with a student. Uh, staffed clinic um, at her disposal. Uh, There was no law firm uh, who would join the effort to overturn those patents. So she had some battle scars uh, from this uh, issue um, and had remained interested in it, but it wasn't until the ACLU uh, was potentially getting involved that she saw that this really could uh, could change things. I,
0: I have a brief clip of her as well, just 37 seconds, again, just to get her on the record in our conversation. Previously, I've worked in the area of genetics, and I uh, chaired the Federal Advisory
1: Commission of the Human Genome Project, and so I was one of the people warned that I could be targeted with others involved by the Unabomber at the time, and one of the people who um, was close to me in that process actually was a, was a target, so I take seriously and totally distinguish that sort of uh, concern about kind of all technologies and where we're going, but you know with my position which is they're great but let's not have them been used against us in a,
0: in a unexpected ways george conteros that's a discussion of how high stakes this work in genes can sometimes be
1: absolutely. and and uh, professor andrews, uh, she she dealt with a lot of um, controversial genetic issues, including uh, human cloning and uh, embryo screening and and so forth. So definitely a lot of stuff to attract uh, the ire of uh, certain people.
0: I wanted to follow up on one thing you said about her work, and that was that no, uh, law firm and the patent bar would uh, join her in the case? Because that's a theme that comes up several times throughout the story that you tell. Uh, why is it that patent attorneys are n- not interested in joining challenges? It might seem like an obvious question to uh, to patents. Why is that uh, a reluctance on their part?
1: Yeah, it, it is a recurring theme. Um, so we have to remember that there are lots of companies at this point who held patents covering different uh, DNA sequences and genes. And those companies did litigate with each other. Right? Patent litigation was ongoing in many cases as companies fought it out over whose patents took priority, whose patents were better, uh, whether these patents were infringed or or weren't. And they challenged each other's patents as being invalid. And there are lots of ways to challenge patents. Someone invented it before, or the invention was obvious, and so forth. So patent lawyers were heavily involved in fighting over gene patents. But in every one of those cases, They accepted the premise that gene patents, as a general proposition, were okay. Um, It's just my gene patents are better than yours, (laughs) or there's something wrong with yours so you can't enforce them against me. But the fundamental principle that these patents should exist was generally accepted by the industry. And nobody in the industry um, would take a position against getting these patents. There was just such a strong commercial interest um, in having the patents that the entire bar um, and most of the industry uh, were aligned in favor of those patents. And so Lori Andrews had a law firm who initially was willing to help her with the lawsuit um, relating to the, uh, the Canavan's uh, gene patent. And they pulled out um, on the eve of the filing, really damaged the uh, the suit um, because they thought, well, you know, this could damage our biotech uh, patent practice if we got a reputation as being anti-patent. So we're not going to do it. And nobody else would either.
0: What's your estimate of the size of the marketplace?
1: Oh, it depends on how you define the market, but but it's huge. It's huge. I mean, the genetics testing market itself is a multi-billion dollar market, but the broader uh, market covering pharmaceuticals and, you know, all sorts of other testing, it's it's a trillion dollar market.
0: So uh, once the legal team was assembled, how did they uh, focus on myriad genetics as the object of their pursuit?
1: So this was an interesting analysis that uh, Chris Hansen and the others at the ACLU and PubPAT did. So by 2005, a couple of researchers at MIT had estimated that a full 20 percent of known human genes um, were covered by patents. So that's thousands of different genes. And, you know, Hansen's idea was not to attack an individual patent um, of an individual company, but to attack the whole principle of patenting human genes. And so to do that, you you can't attack an entire industry in litigation. You have to pick a defendant. And this is what you always do in civil rights cases. One of the arts of bringing a civil rights case is picking uh, the right plaintiffs and the right defendants to go to court. And so they had to pick a gene uh, that that had been patented. And, And there were many likely candidates, right? It had to be a patent that injured Uh, somebody, because you can't have a lawsuit without an injury. And some of these gene patents didn't really injure anybody. So, for example, the patent uh, held by University of Michigan on the gene CFTR uh, associated with cystic fibrosis, Michigan made that patent available pretty much to anybody who wanted to run a diagnostic test at at a fairly minimal cost. And so that wasn't really injuring anybody. Uh, But there were some patents that were causing injury. Uh, One of them and one of the front runners uh, for defendant was a patent um, covering a gene that related to uh, pediatric cardiac arrhythmia called long QT syndrome. Um, The really sad thing about the disease, of course, it it affects children and it creates this uh, uh, cardiac arrhythmia that, that is often fatal. Um, but can be treated with beta blockers, a fairly well-established drug category. Um, But you don't prescribe beta blockers to a child unless you know that they have this genetic defect that's going to give them this arrhythmia. So the test, the diagnostic test to see if you have this defect is really important. And that gene was discovered also by researchers at the University of Utah, Um, But the university licensed the patent to a company um, that planned to run a diagnostic testing business. And it it did at first, but then it went bankrupt Um, and it stopped doing the testing. Um, And the bankruptcy trustee who oversees the bankruptcy estate refused to allow anybody else to operate under the patent while uh, they were sorting out the bankruptcy uh, of this company. And that took years and during that time, nobody was being tested. And not surprisingly, children were dying um, from this arrhythmia because they weren't able to be diagnosed. That was a leading candidate. And you know, when you're a civil rights organization, you are trying to identify uh, plaintiffs who are sympathetic and defendants who seem uh, worthy of sanction. And this company that held this patent certainly did. The problem with long QT syndrome, as Chris Hansen and others at the ACLU realized, was that it's a a fairly rare disease, a rare disorder, and even though it's it's extremely uh, tragic for those families affected by it, not many people have heard about it. And one of the goals of the ACLU in bringing a case like this is to marshal public sentiment uh, to the cause. And so long QT syndrome didn't qualify. Uh, But a gene relating to a disease that everybody knew uh, was um, the the, the gene uh, BRCA1 and its companion BRCA2, which relate to breast and ovarian cancer. And these diseases are, uh, of course, very well known. Breast cancer is probably the most heavily um, uh, supported uh, advocacy disease in the United States. Tons of research relating to it and most importantly though tragic also almost everybody in the united states is affected by breast cancer in some way either because they've had it uh, or a close family member a, a mother a, a sibling uh, another relative has, has had it or a friend has had it and and it's just so well known um, in and and so embedded in the public uh, the public eye that the BRCA genes relating to breast cancer and ovarian cancer were the genes that were picked and those are licensed to Myriad.
0: So uh, it has a built-in public constituency, as you explained, uh, but they also needed to put together a group of plaintiffs before they pursued the case. And I'm wondering about the the plaintiff that gave the case its name, what is AMP?
1: AMP is the uh, the Association for Molecular Pathology. It's a trade association. Um, And its constituents are people who perform diagnostic testing, uh, laboratories um, and, uh, you know, geneticists and uh, pathologists and so forth. Um, So the 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 AMP um, uh, was directly affected by these patents, because one of the things that Myriad did with these patents is unlike the University of Michigan, which allowed Everyone to operate under the CFTR cystic fibrosis gene patents, Myriad uh, reserved the market to itself. It shut down other researchers and uh, other clinics, sorry, clinics that were performing BRCA testing. And uh, many of those clinics um, were affiliated, or the researchers were affiliated with AMP. So AMP um, suffered an injury as a result of the patents.
0: So uh, the case here centered on the fact that they were enforcing their patent uh, and the idea was that people's health was endangered because they couldn't get access easily to these tests. You also write that uh, the Myriad Company was charging a great deal of money for the tests at the time, which put it out of the reach of certain people. What would it have cost to have gotten a test back before the case?
1: Yeah, that's right. So, you know, this is a diagnostic test. Remember, it's given to people who are not sick. Um, most tests like that, your cholesterol test you get from the doctor at a wellness visit, they're they're inexpensive, fifty or hundred dollars. Um, this test cost, you know, it was priced in the neighborhood of three thousand um, dollars, a little less at the beginning, but the price rose uh, every year or so, um, and. So that that's expensive uh, for for most people um, unaffordable for many people and most importantly not covered by most insurance policies at certainly at the beginning um, and not covered more importantly by Medicaid um, which is of course a public uh, public system for um, low-income uh, health and so it it was the the testing was not available to a large number of individuals who, most likely needed it.
0: So uh, I have a clip from the uh, CEO of Myriad Genetics, Mark Skolnick, and I wanted to put that on screen uh, because, as you said, the case was filed on May 12, 2009, five years after the ACLU first got started in doing the research. Uh, let's get him uh, into the conversation, and I'd like to hear how Myriad reacted when they heard about the lawsuit.
1: We did it to win the race. The group that was in that laboratory, working seven days a week we're doing it to beat the other team period and uh and we won here's the brc1 patent linked breast and ovarian cancer susceptibility gene patent 5747282 so the most controversial patent
0: would be the composition there's there's no controversial patent it's all
1: very very easy to understand if you take the time
0: that was uh, a CEO and founder, Mark Skolnick, I, I believe now retired from the company, but uh, that was a 2008 documentary called In the Family, actually done before the case was actually filed. So when the case landed in the legal system, was Myriad had, aware of it, with all that work that had been done for all of those years with ACLU?
1: No, no, the case took Myriad completely by surprise. Um, which itself is surprising, <laughs> given that the ACLU assembled 20 plaintiffs, um, including you know some of the major medical associations, breast cancer advocacy organizations, patients, uh, and doctors, geneticists. But, but no, they had not heard about it um, and were completely floored when it was filed.
0: What was its first stop in the legal system?
1: So in the United States, Uh, Patent cases are heard in federal court, Um, and so you have to pick a federal court to file in, and uh, for a number of reasons, the ACLU uh, filed in its local court uh, in the Southern District of New York.
0: And what judge was it assigned to, and why was that significant?
1: So... Cases are assigned randomly to judges in the federal courts, and there were something like 50 sitting judges in the Southern District of New York uh, when this case was brought, and it was assigned at random to a judge named Robert Sweet, um, who was himself a really interesting character. He was a senior judge at the time. Uh, He was 88 years old, um, but uh, had a reputation as a champion of civil rights, free speech, and so forth. Um, overturned New York's panhandler uh, law that uh, at one time tried to abolish panhandlers from the city Um, and uh, had also been uh, familiar with uh, cases involving science. He's the judge who uh, dismissed the challenge brought against McDonald's Corporation um, by a group of plaintiffs who claimed that uh, their obesity was caused by McDonald's food. So he was viewed as a pretty... Matter of fact, um, judge who, again, didn't have a science background, but, you know, kind of enjoyed science-based cases.
0: Uh Just for a time check, we have about 25 minutes left in our conversation. Uh, judge Sweet seemed to have a secret weapon in his law clerk. <laughs> who was he?
1: Yes, yes. So every federal judge has two law clerks uh, who are generally recent law graduates who, um, after they get their law degree, will go and Uh, spend a year or two working for a judge. It's great training, and it's a prestigious uh, position to have. And that year, Judge Sweet had his two clerks, one of whom just purely by coincidence had a PhD in molecular virology, and his name was Herman Yu. Um, And uh, he had recently graduated from NYU Law School, was working for the judge, and was more than thrilled that the uh, gene patenting case was assigned to his chamber
0: what was judge sweet's decision
1: so judge sweet uh, ruled in favor of the ACLU there were 15 claims of seven patents held by Myriad and the University of Utah that the ACLU team challenged and he overruled all of them um, for a number of a number of reasons uh, most significantly the product of nature doctrine, which basically says you can't patent something that's created by nature, only things that are created by people.
0: What was the next step?
1: So the next step for patent case in the United States is an appeals court, and there's one appeals court in Washington, DC that hears all of the patent cases, and it's called the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, or the Federal Circuit, um, nicknamed by many the Patent Court because it hears all of those patent cases.
0: And uh, that court is head, was headed at the time by uh, someone who seems to be well known within the patent circle, of course, Chief Judge Randall Ray Rader. Uh, what was the significance of him taking the lead on this case?
1: Yes, well, so Judge Rader was and remains to be very well known. He's retired from the court um, at this point. Um, And and he he also was known as a very outspoken judge. Um, He spoke a lot at conferences and legal symposia. And he also was well known to have a fairly pro-patent stance um, and had expressed in some conferences um, some skepticism about the ACLU's case against Myriad and the challenge to gene patents. And... The ACLU team uh, picked up on those comments, and especially Dan Ravisher, uh, who was a former student of um, of Judge Rader's at UVA um, and then had been working with the ACLU through his foundation, the Public Patent Foundation, um, challenged uh, Judge Rader and uh, made a motion that he should be recused from the case because of his comments. that motion, of course, is the kind of motion that is likely to get a judge annoyed. Um, and uh, of course, um, uh, you know, nothing. The motion, the motion was never actually uh, heard. Judge Rader ruled that we won't even rule on this motion unless uh, I'm assigned to hear this case. Um, and not surprisingly, he wasn't assigned to hear the case, but he did. Uh, behind the scenes undoubtedly have something to do with the selection of judges uh, for the panel that did hear the case at the federal circuit.
0: So we learned that Mr. Hansen was leading the legal team for ACLU. Who did Myriad select to lead their legal team?
1: So Myriad, like, like most companies of any size, has in-house lawyers um, and its general counsel uh, and uh, internal patent group, Uh, selected the law firm Jones Day uh, to represent them.
0: They are a big firm in Washington, D.C. and about two blocks away, frankly, from the C-SPAN studios, uh, where we're taping this interview. Uh, When um, the question about this uh, level of a court, we should bring in another very important player and that's the Department of Justice. So the Obama administration is in power. You mentioned earlier that they had an interest in scientific issues and the like. So what was the role of the Justice Department in deciding at what level they would get involved in this case as it moved along the federal courts?
1: Yeah, this is a really interesting and and frankly unique aspect of this particular case. So the Patent Office from the beginning had an interest in this case. They issued the patents. that The ACLU was challenging. And at the district court in New York, they were actually a defendant in the case. But but the district court judge dismissed them from the case for various procedural reasons. Um, Nevertheless, the Patent Office, seeing that the Judge Sweet in New York overturned all of their patents, um, wanted the government to step in and advocate on behalf of the Patent Office. Uh, and and that happens quite often. In the United States, though, individual agencies can't just go to court, right? All litigation um, conducted on behalf of the United States is handled by the Department of Justice. Um, at the very highest level, it's the Solicitor General of the United States who is a presidential appointee, but the Solicitor General has a staff within the Department of Justice, and then, also uh, oversees all of the different um, uh, attorneys, uh, district attorneys throughout the um, throughout the country. And so when an agency like the Patent Office wants to be heard in court, they have to uh, get the Department of Justice to represent them and make an appeal to the Solicitor General to take up the case. And some cases are too unimportant to do that. Um, others, uh, but but something like this certainly was not going to be. The surprise here uh, was that there were other agencies within the administration that were advocating against the patents and against uh, Myriad's uh, position. And primarily, uh, that effort was initiated by NIH, the National Institutes of Health, led by Francis Collins. And uh, the NIH was instrumental in marshalling other agencies within the administration, primarily OSTP, the Office of Science and Technology Policy, um, and the National Economic Council, the NEC, to lobby, essentially, uh, the Solicitor General not to support the patents. And in the end, the Solicitor General did decide uh, that, for the most part, it was not going to support the Patent Office or the patents that it issued.
0: Uh, our, our public at C-SPAN will be familiar with the acting Solicitor General at the time was Neil Katiel, and, and ultimately he decided, as you write, to personally argue the government's position in Myriad before the circuit court. Uh, so we have Katiel, Greg uh, and for uh, Jones Day for Myriad, and and Mr. Hansen for ACLU. Um, in the end, the ruling two to one against the ACLU's case, so they reversed Judge Sweet. So on to the Supreme Court. In the interest of time, I'll just tell people that it took the ACLU two go rounds to actually get the case heard at the Supreme Court. So let's fast forward to when oral arguments happened. What did the court actually zero in as as the central question in this case?
1: So despite all of the issues around pricing and access to health care and competition in the market, the real issue before the court in this case was whether a human gene is a product of nature that can't be patented or whether it's a human creation uh, when it's isolated and taken out of the human body that can be patented. And so the Supreme Court oral argument revolved largely around that one issue.
0: When was the case heard?
1: The case was heard on Tax Day, April fifteenth, two 2013.
0: Did you have an opportunity to be in, in the Supreme Court when it was heard? I,
1: I Kick myself repeatedly uh, for that. No, um, I, I had attended oral arguments in other cases uh, relating to patents at the court, but I think I had to teach a class that day. <laughs> and I did not make it out to the court for that argument.
0: That's where the recordings that the court makes of its oral arguments, uh, I'm sure, came in handy. We have a little clip from one of those. And this is a question of between Justice Stephen Breyer and the Jones Day attorney, Gregory Castanius representing Myriad. Let's listen.
1: All parts of the human body, anything from inside the body that you snip out and isolate? No. And it gets to 101, does it have to, I mean, that's actually what's bothering me. Okay, so let let me try to help you with that, because the the distinction is between the liver or the kidney, which was the one brought up in uh, the Federal Circuit opinion, but liver, kidney, kidney. you know gallbladder pick your organ but it's the same thing there's there is nothing different about that piece ah then then the it's if girl, watch is. what you're doing watch that, that's very very interesting because really we are reducing then 101 to anything under the sun and and that it seems to me we've rejected more often than we followed it and particularly with the thing found in nature doctrine, because, of course, it doesn't just human kidneys and so forth. Everything is inside something else. Uh, plants, rocks, whatever you want.
0: George Contreras, I'm sure you've listened to that oral argument several times. Uh, how, uh, what, how did you think about it? What was your reaction to the exchanges that happened between counsel and the nine sitting justices?
1: This, this was a really fun oral argument to listen to um, because it it involved so many metaphors and there was so much creativity flowing here as the justices really struggled uh, to understand, you know, what the arguments were and how to conceptualize uh, whether a human gene, when taken out of the body, is something different than the human gene in the body, and you heard the, uh, the the metaphors that Justice Breyer was mentioning about. Is this like a kidney? Could you patent a kidney when you take it out of the body? Um, but there were chocolate chip cookies and baseball bats and leaves from trees and all sorts of other things um, that that really make the head spin. Um, when you uh, put them all together.
0: So just a question for the public in understanding the Supreme Court's role. There are no scientists that sit as judges on the court. In, in deciding a case like this, does not having a scientific batter, uh, background matter to the outcome? Um
1: No, it it shouldn't matter, and that's the way that our justice system is set up. The justices on the Supreme Court are are generalists, and you could never staff a court. You would have a thousand people on the court if there was an expert in every scientific discipline um, that came up before the court. And so it's the job of the advocates to reduce complicated scientific principles down to simple enough concepts that the rules of law can be applied to them.
0: You describe in the book that the questioning of the Myriad lawyer, whom we just heard a little bit of, was almost a bloodbath. Why did you describe it such? Um, it,
1: it, he, he was in a very difficult position. Um, Justice Breyer, uh, who I had as a professor in law school, so I experienced his, uh, his questioning before, is a very uh, trenchant uh, and probing questioner. And and there was a high degree of skepticism that the decision, of course, came out in favor uh, of of the ACLU's position in large part. And so uh, the justices were initially skeptical of Myriad's position. And it's difficult to be a lawyer facing a bench of nine justices who are skeptical of your position. They're going to ask very difficult questions and try to trip you up. And I think Greg Castanias did as Good a job as could be done under the circumstances but um, but it was a very tough it was a very tough bench
0: so that was April fifteenth of that year and after these big cases, there's always a meeting of with the press corps and the principals out on the steps of the Supreme Court. What was the attitude of both sides after the case was heard?
1: Well, the ACLU uh, side was pretty ecstatic you can see from some of the photos and and, and the news clips they and I think everybody who saw and heard the argument uh, agreed that they came out um, looking pretty good in the case um, the the Myriad and Jones Day group um, you know they didn't give up hope uh, but but I, I think were a little bit less uh, optimistic
0: for these big cases there's often lots of people on the Supreme Court Plaza as the case is being heard what was the atmosphere like that day so
1: this The case had attracted a lot of attention, Uh, breast cancer action and force, uh, the uh, facing our risk of cancer empowered, um, organized a rally on the Supreme Court steps and, uh, you know, with banners and megaphones and uh, everything you'd expect in a big civil rights case. People lined up, you know, from like 1 a.m. the previous uh, night um, to get a spot uh, in the gallery to, uh, to view the arguments. Um, so, uh, and, and I just have to say this is very unlike most patent cases. Most patent cases, uh, you can show up, you know, 15 minutes before the argument and get a seat uh, to watch. This was highly unusual in that respect.
0: When did the court announce the decision?
1: It was, um, a couple of months later in June of 2013.
0: And you've already told us that the case was won by the ACLU, but what was the uh, ultimate vote?
1: Well, it was a 9-0 decision, which, again, is unusual for the Supreme Court, for those who know anything about it. Um, It was unanimous, with one concurring uh, three-sentence opinion by Justice Scalia, uh, who basically said... We don't, I don't know anything about molecular biology, and neither do the rest of you justices. So what are we doing here? Um, but that was just kind of his typical uh, aside. He did vote with the uh, unanimous court on uh, the decision.
0: So unpack the results. What, what uh, in fact, did they do uh, for the, the people, the plaintiffs involved in it, and for the larger biotech and patent world?
1: So there were a lot of effects from this decision. The immediate effect on the BRCA testing market was that literally the day that the decision was announced, competing labs announced that they were now offering BRCA testing, uh, some at half the price of Myriad's price. And so competition was introduced to the marketplace immediately. And that, that did give access to many more people. Um, It broke the monopoly that Myriad had on this form of testing. Um, But the implications were much broader, of course, than just this one company. The ACLU was not out to get Myriad Genetics. This was a case about a principle. And so all of those thousands of patents covering human genes, although technically they still remain on the books at the patent office, they're not enforceable at all, so whether it's long QT syndrome, or cystic fibrosis, or whatever the disease may be, the genes are not patentable. And that has had an interesting effect. Um, It it has enabled um, more research to occur. Um, It has taken away some barriers to more advanced forms of testing that we have today, multi-gene testing, gene panels, um, that will test you for markers and 100 different genes at the same time. There, there was a lot of hesitation about that type of technology um, while these patents were still in effect.
0: What, what happened economically to Myriad?
1: So, Myriad is still doing fine. Uh, they're still a profitable company, still doing well. They are still the leading provider of BRCA testing. They, they produce a good test, um, it's quite reliable. Uh, it is now covered by all major insurance carriers and Medicare uh, and Medicaid. Um, the price has come down, uh, which I think is important, but it's still uh, enough to earn them a profit. And they have, uh, they have other products, too. This is not a one product company. Um, we focused on the BRCA testing, but, but they have a panoply of, of tests that they offer
0: readers of your book will find that after you complete the story, there is an addendum with your thoughts on the real implications of this test. So ultimately, did the court make the best decision for the, for the future of the public?
1: I think the court made a good decision. I mean, I think it's logically inconsistent in some ways, and I and other academics have uh, you know, picked at it in in that way. But overall, I do think that this is the right decision. This this is not a decision that abolishes patents in some sweeping way. I uh, agree that the patents are beneficial um, in a lot of situations. It's just patents on these very basic um, products of nature and natural phenomenon I feel are not appropriate because they should be available uh, for use and exploitation by all researchers who can then build on them Uh, to create new technologies and and get patents on their actual inventions as opposed to things that they found in the natural world.
0: One uh, thing to explain, when one holds a patent, is it internationally enforceable or is it just a U.S. patent?
1: No, it is. uh, Patents are national. So every country issues their own patents. And there is an international aspect to the myriad story, which, again, would have tripled the length of the book had I tried to cover that as well.
0: But the question maybe is, is since uh, genes cannot be patented by U.S. law, patent law, does that put U.S. companies at a disadvantage against international competitors?
1: Um, Well, no, certainly not. I mean, when markets are international, um, myriad sought patents and got patents in other countries. And non-U.S. companies, you know, are on the same playing field in the U.S. as U.S. companies, right? That it, it, it's, it's one of these common misperceptions that changes in U.S. patent law will affect U.S. companies in some way. The, more U.S. patents are issued to foreign companies than to U.S. companies these days. Um, and so the, the real impact is on U.S. consumers. Um, You know, U.S. consumers are the ones who are impacted by the fact that there's only one company who's able to perform this testing as opposed to competition, as there were in other markets. This testing in Canada, um, in Europe, was much, much less expensive um, because there was uh, a competition.
0: So as we close out here, is this story over? You write that there have been efforts in Congress to deal with this question legislatively.
1: That's right. And that's the way the US legal system works. The Supreme Court is the ultimate arbiter of uh, the interpretation of US laws, but the laws can be changed by Congress. And as long as Congress doesn't enact an unconstitutional law, and that's not really an issue here, um, they can do it. And, and Congress frequently overturns Supreme Court decisions uh, in, in the patent area. And in 2019, uh, two U.S. senators uh, involved in IP issues did advance a bill that would sort of in one fell swoop have eliminated all Supreme Court and other judicial precedent relating to patent eligibility, Um, and uh, that legislation didn't advance in 2019, and then COVID came along and lots of other uh, issues of importance uh, were before Congress, Uh, but it's back. And uh, just this summer, at the urging of the senators, the Patent and Trademark Office made a public call for comments on how these patent eligibility decisions of the Supreme Court are affecting industry. Um, And they got a lot of responses, uh, 140 or so different responses that they're sorting through now and that will probably form the basis for another legislative effort in the next session.
0: Is the, are the senators working on of one party or is it bipartisan?
1: It is bipartisan. Interestingly, patent issues don't really fall along party lines. Um, the, there are lots of different uh, divides in the patent world, but Republican Democrat is not a big one. You get people on both sides of the aisle uh, disagreeing and agreeing.
0: So, George Contreras, eight years of your life working on this project, (laughs) and now now it's done. Looking back over all the effort that you put into it, how did your view of the system change through your work?
1: So, I learned a huge amount uh, doing the research for this book. I mean, first, the the personal stories that I heard um, from some of the plaintiffs who were patients were, were really... Heartrending and um, really gave me a huge appreciation for what individuals face out there in the healthcare market. Um, but even more interesting intellectually for me was learning about the intricacies of how the federal government operates behind the scenes. Um, the way that the Solicitor General instigated an interagency process to come up with its position in this case was utterly fascinating and, and honestly not very well known, even among academics who study um, the Supreme Court and litigation and, and these issues, this is not very well known. And I was extremely grateful to people uh, who will remain anonymous, who spoke to me and explained how this all worked. Um, I And I really hope the book, Uh, gives a greater appreciation of these issues to the general reader.
0: The book is called The Genome Defense, George Conteris. It's author, eight years worth of effort into telling the story of the landmark Supreme Court case in 2013, AMP versus Myriad Genetics. Thanks so much for spending an hour with us. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c Send me your questions, your comments or ideas. Your feedback is welcome.